How are we doing, church? Doing good? That's what I like to hear. Awesome. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 35. Actually, we're going to study uh, from 26 all the way to 35, but, you know, fear not. We'll get out close to on time, all right? So grab your Bibles. Go there because we're going to hop around just a little bit. Uh, we are in uh, the middle of, I think we're in week five of this series called Sovereign Legacy. And before I get to the preaching part, I just want to uh, point out two things. Uh, our <clears throat> our uh, partner booth out, out in the lobby th- this month is the, the McKenzie Wilson Foundation. And the reason that it's this month is because on 11-22, November the 22nd, on 11-22 is the fifth annual McKenzie Run. And we partner with the foundation um, and, and in fact, if you don't know Mackenzie, I hope you know her story and the huge impact her life and legacy has had on what is now 1122. She's a 15-year-old girl that got saved in an 1122 service. And in her Bible, she wrote, I want to make my faith public. And so her parents and friends and family took that prayer after she went to be with the Lord. She passed away, and, and they took that prayer written in her Bible and made it a reality and started um, the McKenzie Wilson Foundation. And they partner with uh, schools in town to, to help educate some children, but also they partner with another one of our partners, Akoa Refuge, to build orphanages in Uganda. And so things like the McKenzie Run help fund and fuel that. And so every single one of us on 1122 need to be a part of it. And, and if you're like, yeah, but I'm not a runner, I haven't missed it and I've yet to run, okay? So sign up, wear your running clothes. Everybody think you're awesome. Just spritz with a little water, eat the bananas, drink the Gatorade. It's delicious. Be a part of it. It's like a whole thing. Also, if you had, like I did, if you had NFL dreams and you thought one day I want to be on the field and you realize, eh, I can't, you can if you sign up for the run because it starts and ends on the Everbank field. And uh, they'll put your big mug up on that big jumbotron. So now's your chance, right, to, to live all your goals. So do that. Sign up. If you've got questions, they're, they're out in the partner booth. And honestly, um, you know, this series we're in called Sovereign Legacy. And we've talked every week that sovereign means that God's in charge and legacy means your life matters. And so I can't think of a better title of, of the impact that McKenzie's life and legacy has had on our city and all the way around the world to Uganda. So be a part of that. Also, I don't know if you've picked up your uh, weekly copy of Folio. Have you picked up Folio Weekly this week? Okay. Well, it's kind of about us this week. They did a, a feature article in here, um, and they've kind of got hipster Jesus right here on the front, right? Like Jesus with some cool glasses and an iPad and do the free girly sign. I don't know what that is, but that's what he's doing. And, um, and, and it's an article about the Church of 1122, which can always make you a little nervous because uh, I would just say this, that our worldview and Folio's worldview is not exactly the same. I'll just say it that way. Is that safe? But quite honestly, um, they were incredibly gracious and just talked about their experience here at a, at a church service and about um, how God is using this place to reach um, what they call the most religiously disinterested generation in American history and it's really, the article's about you, it's not about me, it's about you, and about your authenticity and our authenticity and how God's using that just to draw people unto himself, which is so cool. And so I am grateful um, for, for the things they said. Here's my favorite part, though, if I could just indulge myself for a second. It says, the sermon the day I attended is from Ephesians about putting on the whole armor of God in fitted jeans and a short sleeve patterned shirt, Pastor Joby, bald, goateed, stout, laid back, Part Stone Cold Steve Austin, part all right, all right, all right, McConaughey. Isn't that great? That's the nicest thing anybody's ever said about me in my whole life. So, so pick that up, and if you know any people from over there, say thanks. All right, so um, <clears throat> the neat thing is, though, that, that whole article is about how do you get disinterested people connected to God? And so what we're talking about this morning is Jacob. You remember, we've been talking about Abraham and Isaac. Isaac had two kids, Esau and Jacob. And last week, we were talking about Esau and Jacob. And so we're talking about how Jacob um, returns to God, that, that Jacob at one point gets close to God, and then he returns to God. And so it's very much in line with what the article is all about. And so just to give you a little um, perspective of where we're going, we're going to camp out in chapter 35. But if you want to, you can back up to 25. That's where we were last week. And you remember, Jacob means deceiver or deceitful one, and he had an old br- older brother named Esau, which means hairy. And you'll remember last week that the deceitful one, the younger brother, stole the birthright of his older brother. He kind of played into, um, in, into the appetite that his older brother had, and he stole his older brother's birthright for, for some red stew. And so 
And then when you get to chapter 27, I'm just going to give you the, the, you don't have to read it all. Read it all when you get home. When you get to chapter 27, what happens here is that Jacob, the younger brother, the deceitful one, he's up to it again. And so he tricks his dying father into giving him, the younger brother, the blessing of the firstborn son, all right? He, he dresses up like a little hairy guy, and he brings some food in, and he says, you know, Dad, it's really me. It's really the older son. And so he receives the blessing, and he steals it from his older brother. And so when Esau, the older brother, comes in, this is pretty important, parents. He says to his dad, he goes, well, well bless me. I'm the oldest. And the dad, Isaac, says, well, I can't because I've already blessed your younger brother. And so Esau says, well, why don't you just take it back and give it to me? And you can't take back your words, you know how big a deal that is? You can't take back your words. And so listen, parents, this isn't even the sermon. This is just for free. Do you know that your kids will probably live up to the blessings or down to the curses that you speak over them? And so it's why every single night, man, when I put my kids to bed, I just, I pray blessing over them. I don't want them to just infer it from my heart. I want them to hear it from my mouth with their little ears. And you can't take your words back. Words are important. I mean, it's like once you squeeze out the toothpaste from the tube, you can't get it back in. Try it when you get home, okay? It won't go back in. And it's just like your words. And so Isaac blesses Jacob, the younger son. He steals his older brother's birthright. And so then when you get to chapter 28, so remember Jacob's kind of a little wimpy guy, a little skinny jean, you know, stew cooking, scarf wearing in July kind of kid. And his brother was kind of like the studly, hairy, good with bow, big brother. And so he's scared. He's like, oh, no, my big brother's going to kill me. So in chapter 28, he goes on the run. And while he is running, he has an encounter with God. And what we're going to talk about this morning is these three major encounters that Jacob has with God. And so in chapter 28, some of you have heard of this before, even though you didn't realize that this is where it came from. Jacob's on the run, and, and he lays down one night, and he puts his head on a rock. And the reason he would do that is that when you went to another part of the country, um, in order to see what God's territory you were in, you would put your head on a rock and go to sleep, and that God was supposed to tell you uh, what God's territory you were in. And so he goes to sleep this night, and he has this dream about the stairway to heaven. You see, he thought it was a Zeppelin thing. It's a Bible thing. He has this stairway to heaven dream. And when he wakes up in the morning, he says this. This is in uh, chapter 28, verse 16. It says, And then Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And so he calls that place Bethel, the house of God. And so he has this encounter with God, and he realizes that God is in this place, and he he experiences the presence of God, but he does not surrender his life to the person of God, and that's very important. In fact, folks, in churches all over the South, even like this one this morning, there's a lot of people that would be in this camp that you, you, you experience when I go in that room and they sing those songs and, and the McConaughey Stone Cold guys preaches and people raise their hand and prayers happen. Like something is happening in there. This is amazing. And I think it's the Holy Spirit. I think it's the presence of God. He recognizes his presence, but he doesn't surrender to God. And we know this because if you hop down a little bit later in verse 20, here's what Jacob says to God, he says, if God will be with me and if he'll keep me in this way that I go and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house, then the Lord shall be my God. You see, it's evidence that, that Jacob has this encounter with the presence of God, but he doesn't surrender his life to the lordship of God. You know why? If then statements don't matter, don't, don't count towards God. Because if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And so he has not surrendered his life. Essentially what he's doing, he's coming and saying, okay, God, if you give me what I want, then you can be my God. Which in essence really means I'm God and God, you got to get in line. But he has this encounter with God. He knows there's something special about this place. There's some of you in this room this morning and that's where you are. You're here this morning and you've encountered the presence of God. You cannot deny it. Something is shaking you and stirring in you. And you're even a little mad at you that you're allowing yourself to believe that there's a God in this place. But you know it. And so now you're starting with a little if then. You're like, all right, God, if you do this, then maybe I'll follow you. So he has this encounter with God. He names the place Bethel. He does some very religious things, all right? He has a little worship service there. He builds an altar and and does some religious things. He even says to God, I'll tithe. If you bless me, I'll tithe. So he does some religious things, but yet he does not, he doesn't surrender to God yet. That's 28. 
So then, again, remember, he's on the run. He's running from his big, hairy, good-with-the-bow brother. And so while he's on the run, he goes and he tries to find a wife. And so in chapter 29, you get this crazy story. If you think the Bible's boring, you ought to read Genesis 29. While he's on the run, he becomes like a farmhand at this guy Laban's house. And Laban has two daughters, and one's hot and one's not. That's just how it is. Sorry. And so... He wants the hot one, who doesn't? And he says, hey, what do I have to do to get the hot daughter? And, he, and Laban, the d- farmer dad, says, work for me for seven years. And so he works for seven years to earn the hand of, of Rachel, the hot daughter. And then um, the way they did marriage ceremony was way different than we do today. And so he goes into this dark tent on the night that they're married to consummate the relationship, wakes up in the morning, and he's laying next to Leah, the ugly sister, all right? just happens. And so he's like, uh-oh. So he goes back to the dad. like, you gave me the wrong sister. You gave me the ugly one. I wanted the hot one. He's like, my bad. Work seven more years. I'll give you the hot one. So he works seven more years. And now he's got, he married two. So first of all, he's dumb enough to marry two women. Secondly, sisters. You understand? Like how many of us are going to have, have a hard time making it through Thanksgiving, just being with everybody together for a minute? He's marrying them all. Okay. So he's not making great decisions. So he marries both of them. It's not that great. And then he works for six more years uh, for Laban, his father-in-law. And then essentially what happens by the time you get to the end of 29 is this, is that he, Jacob can't get along with people. And, and here's why. It's because, you know, wherever you go, there you are. So for those of you that are like, I just can't find meaningful relationships, guess what? You are the common denominator, Right? You know, nine disciple groups haven't worked for you. Guess what? They're working for the other nine groups. I'm just saying, sometimes it's just you. It's Jacob. Because at the root of the problem is that Jacob is deceitful. He's the deceiver. And he is Lord of his own life. Even when he encountered God for the first time. He said, God, if you'll work for me the way I want you to, then you can be my God. Same way he treats his father-in-law, his wives, everybody in his life. And so, by the end of chapter 29, he's got family issues. And God tells him, hey, listen, it's time to leave here and it's time to go back home. Now, the problem with going back home is this, is that Esau lives on the way. And so now, even though he's been avoiding this for over 20 years, now he's going to have to bump into his brother and he's freaking out again. Okay? And again, because his brother's big and hairy and buff and good with a bow. And so in a few weeks, we're going to talk about that whole relationship. But when you, get to verse, and when you get to chapter 32, in chapter 32, Jacob is at this place where finally, for the first time, he's about to get real about the issues that are in his life. He, he's going to stop blaming everybody else, and he's not just going to look at the fruit of the sin in his life, but he's going to begin to look at the root of the sin of his, in his life. And the root of the sin of his life is him. That he is the problem. And so you get this account at the end of of Genesis chapter 32 where Jacob wrestles with God. And And it says in verse 24 and 32, 24, it says, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. You see, here's some of you in this room that God's been pursuing you and God's been coming after you, and it will not be until you get alone with God for a little while that you begin to actually encounter God. Man, one of my seminary professors, really the only one I really liked, told me this when I graduated. He said that if the devil can't make you bad, he'll just make you busy. And it's just true. Some of you, some of you are so busy, you're so stressed out, your world is so loud, you cannot hear the still small voice of God just whispering in your heart of hearts. But Jacob, he gets all alone, and then this is crazy. The, I think the text is um, it's intentionally, intentionally ambiguous about the man wrestling with Jacob and God. So essentially what happens is God becomes a man and wrestles with Jacob. And then they wrestle all night long. And it looks kind of like an even match. But here's what you have to understand is that it's by God's mercy and grace that he even allows Jacob to be in this wrestling match with him. Much like it's by his mercy and grace that he allows me and you this morning to be in this wrestling match with him. Do you get this? That the first time you cuss God, the first time you turn your back on him, the first time you rebel against him, we actually deserve to be smited, whatever that means. But instead of that, you know what we get? We get his love and his mercy and his grace. He actually allows us to stay in the wrestling match long enough till we can figure out that, hey, we might need to tap out. It's much like when I wrestle my son JP. We wrestle for hours. Just for the record, I can dominate him. I just need you to know that, Okay. I could knock him out, choke him out, break his arm, whatever. You name it, I could defeat him that way. Now, sometimes, and this is just a parenting tip to you dads, ready? Sometimes you got to put it on him a little bit. You know why? 
Because you're trending in different directions. Do you understand? As I'm getting weaker and weaker, he's getting stronger and stronger. And there will be a day where he'll be able to choke out dad. But I wanted to trigger some kind of unhealthy fear from back in the day. Where like, no, you talk to daddy like that, it hurts. You understand? So you get them early. Before like high school, because one day they'll get you. But I'm just wrestling with him. And, and it's by grace and mercy that, that you even allow him in the fight. But they wrestle all, all night. And then, at the end of it, it's, uh, the Bible says this. It says, it says in verse 27, and God says, to, God says to Jacob, after they're resting all night long, and Jacob's like, I'm not letting go, I'm not letting go. Essentially, what God does, God touches his hip and pops it out of socket, all right? And then Jacob finally taps out, and he's like, okay, you win. By the way, I love it, I love it, I love it. At the end of services, when you come up, and I can just see you wrestling with God, and God's got you in a headlock. Because here's what I know, you're going to walk away with a limp. <laughs> I mean, he's got you, he's got you. And please, wrestle, wrestle, ask your questions and wrestle. But here's what's going to happen, you're done for. If he's got you in that kind of grip, there's only one choice, and it's going to be surrender. And it's because he loves you. And so God says to him, what is your name? And Jacob replies, Jacob. And then God says, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. So here's, here's the deal. The first time Jacob encounters God, he encounters the presence of God, but he doesn't know God personally. The second time he encounters him, he wrestles with God. And in that moment, that's the place where Jacob says, okay, I'm not in charge anymore, God. You are in charge. You are Lord, and I'm not Lord. And when he gets to that place of surrender, of surrender, not, God, if you'll hook me up, then I'll follow you. But, okay, I get it, God, you're sovereign, you're in charge, and I'm not. And when he surrenders, that's when God looks at him and says, now, what's your name? And remember, when he says, my name is Jacob, he's saying, for my whole life, I've been a deceiver, I've been a cheat, I'm on the run now because I cheated my brother. In fact, the heart of the problem is a problem with my heart. My name is deceitful one. And he surrenders his life to the lordship of God in that moment. And here's what God does. God says, not anymore. Not anymore. That's the old you, and the old you is dead. And so, not only is your nature going to change, but I'm going to change your name to represent the fact that that old you, Jacob, is dead, and your new name will be Israel, Israel. It means the one who wrestles or encounters God. That's in verse 32. Now, if this was, you know, if we were doing a video, baptism video kind of thing right here, typically what happens here in the story is then from that moment when you encounter God and surrender to Jesus, everything goes up and to the right. And you would think the next few chapters would be like, well, from that day forward, Jacob led a disciple group and went on a short-term mission trip and planted a church in an old Walmart and, you know, whatever it is. But the problem with the Bible is that it's actually about real life and real people. So what happens is, from chapter 32 to 35, what Jacob does is what many of us have done. That we have these amazing encounters with God. It usually starts with you encounter the presence of God and go, oh my goodness, there's something here bigger than me. Then you get to the place where God calls you out and you surrender to the person of Jesus Christ. And then, and then, over time, usually not overnight, but over time you just begin to drift away. You just begin to drift away. And by the time we, we pick up our hero here in Genesis chapter 35, what's happened in those three chapters is he's just wandered away from this incredible relationship with God that he once had. Sound familiar to any of you? Because I'm just going to be honest. There are times in my life where I've encountered the manifest presence of God, and, and it was so real, it was so tangible, his, his presence was so thick, I felt like that if I opened my eyes quick enough, I'd just see God's face right there. I mean, there were some times in Saturated, our revival, that I just, you know, coming here night after night after night and worshiping and, and, and hearing sermons preached, and I just felt so close to God. There have been times on the mission field when I was just eyeball to eyeball with the least of these brothers of mine serving them that I thought I saw Jesus. There's been times where I prayed for people, and God so specifically answered my prayer, I just knew it was God flexing. 
There's been times where I've heard people say, hey, listen, my friend, my friend will be impossible to be reached with the gospel. And yet every day I see or every week I see that same guy, that impossible one to save at the altar here. And he surrendered his life to Christ. I I have these encounters with the almighty sovereign God. And I know that I know that I know he's my father in heaven. And then somehow, I don't know what happens, but I just look up one day and I think, where'd he go? Where, where did he go? Why do I feel so far away from God? The hymn writer, the old hymn writer says it this way, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Sound familiar to you? Anybody know a guy like that? Man, I brush a guy's teeth every day that reminds me of that, all right? I shave with that guy every day. Do you understand? That guy is me. That much like Jacob, we can have these amazing encounters with God and then look up and he feels like he's a million miles away. And what I would promise you is God didn't move, but we are prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. I don't know anybody that wakes up in the morning and says, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to leave God. No. There's a few things that happen. One of the things that can happen, one of the things that, that, uh, that Jacob does here is the influence of those closest to him, he begins to worship their idols. He begins to worship their idols. The idols that his wives brought along with them, he puts them up in his house. And, and, and again, I don't think he wakes up one day and he goes, I'm going to worship that God instead of that God. But he just begins to drift away because he's got idols in his life. Another thing that begins to ha- happen to Jacob that you'll see all throughout these, these from 32 to 35, is that... <clears throat> is that if he doesn't pay close attention, he just begins, to, um, he just begins to, to activate these old habits that the old Jacob keeps just bringing up his nasty head. Has it ever happened to you? Like you don't mean to. You know all the stuff theologically. You know you're a new creation in Christ. You know you used to be dead and now you're alive. But man, all the things that you used to struggle with before you met Jesus, you look around and you're still kind of struggling with them. You still talk the way you used to. You still believe the old lies of Satan that you used to believe. And you find yourself falling into old patterns of belief and old habits. He does that. And then sometimes some of you feel far from God, not because of something that you've done, but something that happened to you. And you think, well, God, I just surrendered to you. How, I thought you were in charge. How are you letting this happen to me? Jacob's daughter gets raped in this chapter. And, and, and his response to that is, is he just responds in vengeance and has his family wipe out this entire village. And he's beginning to live in the same death and destruction and deceitfulness that he did before he wrestled with God and surrendered his life. Can I just, does it sound familiar to anybody? Anybody need to hear a sermon on, well, what do I do when I surrender to Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I've done those things, I've raised my hand, I checked the thing, I went to the class, I got baptized, made a video, I've done it all, and now here I am again. I feel like I'm in the same place. Because that's where Jacob is. That's where Jacob is, and that's where we find him if we pick it up in chapter 35, beginning in verse 1. And this is good news. And God said to Jacob, And God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. First and foremost, you got to know this, that God always initiates and we respond. That God always initiates and we respond. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They ran and hid. And what was God's response? In Genesis chapter 3, God walks through the Garden of Eden and calls out to them. This is just true. You can run and you can hide, but God is passionately and lovingly pursuing you. That God always initiates. And here's why, you've got to know this, that nothing pleases God more than when His children come home. You get this? That nothing pleases God more than when his children come home. So in Genesis chapter 35 verse 1 is an invitation from God to this wayward Jacob, even though he knows better. And he's like, hey, Jacob, remember when you and I met at Bethel? You remember that first time, even before you surrendered to me? You remember that moment where, where, where you knew that you knew that I was God and that you were not and that you woke up from that dream and you said, this place is amazing. You remember when we first met that way? Genesis 35, 1, God's invitation is, Jacob, why don't you just come back home? Hey, listen to me, church. You know what God's invitation to you is today? Hey, why don't you just come back home? 
why don't you just come back home? Nothing pleases God more than when his children come home. And I know everybody's story is different and everybody's unique, just like everybody else. That's awesome. But every single one of us have been invited to come back home to a loving Heavenly Father. And so in verses 2 and following, what we're going to do is we are going to see how Jacob comes back home. Now, here's the thing. This, this message is going to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's going to help those of you that are ready to be real about where you are in your life. Now, again, if you're just going to fake it, all right, and if you're just going to have that, that Sunday morning disease of finitis, like, hey, how you doing? I'm fine. Then just, all right, be fine. See you next week. I hope God chips through that hardened heart one day. But for those of you that are ready to say, yeah, something's not right. Something's not right. Whether you've never come home for the first time or you know what it means to be home and you've strayed far from God, here's what Jacob does. In verse 2, it says, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourself, and change your garments. You see, <clears throat> here's what Jacob says. Jacob says, we're going to do three things as we return back to Bethel, as we return back to the house of God. He says three things. The first one is to put away foreign gods. The second one is to purify yourself. And the third one is to change your garments. Now, this isn't like three holy hops to heaven, okay? But here are three things that almost always accompany people returning home to God. The first one is this. The first one is confession. That if you are a Christian, then your life should be full of daily confession. Now, the good news, listen to me, Catholics, you don't have to confess to me, Okay? I mean, I know I'm a professional Christian, but I don't have the hat or the robe or any of that stuff. The good news is that you, if you know Jesus, you are a priest. This is what Peter says in the Bible, all right? It's called the priesthood of believers. That Jesus is the great high priest, so you don't have to go through me to get to him. You can go straight to him. Now, if you hurt somebody else, you ought to confess to them, but you ought to confess to God. And so what Jacob does here is he says <clears throat> they identify the foreign gods, so he says, bring those, put away the foreign gods. So the first thing you got to do is confess the idols that are in your life. Because one of the things that has led you far from God is, are, are the idols in your life. The book of Hebrews will say it this way in Hebrews 12. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So there are some things in your life that aren't sin, but they hinder your relationship with Jesus. And so what are those things? You need, to, you need to identify those things. Like TV is not bad unless it's bad. And it's hindering your relationship with Jesus. Right? College football is not bad unless you spend more time on that than you do in your relationship with Jesus. Fantasy football is not bad unless you know more about uh, the, the fantasy stats than you do the word of God. Then it's just dumb bad. And it's just hindering you. So you got to throw off everything that hinders because those are idols. Because you're, you're, you're attributing too much weight to those temporary things in your world. Now again, you should have hobbies. You should do fun stuff until you treat that stuff as if it's your Lord. And the sin that so easily entangles. There are some of you, and the reason your relationship with Jesus can't get traction is because when you surrendered your life to Christ, and he died on the cross for you, the chains fell off, and then you just picked them up and you put them back over your neck again. And you're walking around carrying a burden that you were not meant to carry anymore. It's been paid for you, okay? There's no more mortgage on your life. It's already done. It's paid for. And yet you're walking in a sin that he's set you free from. And so he says, so you put off those things that hinder and the sin that so easily entangles, and then you know what you do? And fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. That means, since he was the one that came after you and invited you and paid for you, he also will, by the power of the Holy Spirit living in you, sanctify you and help you walk in maturing obedience with Jesus. So the first thing is confession. Confession, that you would be honest about the sin that's in your life, about the idols in your life. And then he says, purify yourself. The Bible word for that would be repentance. Repentance. Because here's what it means. Here's what it means to purify yourself. You've been, you've been putting your faith and hope and trust and satisfaction in the things of this world, and he's saying, identify what those things are and then purify yourself. Turn away from those things and turn towards the only one that has the power to fulfill his promises. Like your car made you all kind of promises. 
right? Like you're an old guy driving a sports car, and your car is like, come on, drive me. You'll be young. It lied to you, bro. You ain't young. It's cool. Drive your car. Go fast. It's awesome, man. Hallelujah, all right? But it just lied to you. It just did. And God is the only one that can fulfill his promises. And so to purify themselves, they put off those things that were drawing them away from the Lord, and, and they turned toward him. First John 1, 9 says it this way. Therefore, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's the thing. Some of you have got the idols of your life kind of stored away in the, in the little closet in your house, okay? And, and again, the living room's clean and the foyer's clean. It's kind of like when you have friends call you, hey, we're in the neighborhood, we're going to stop by. What do you say? Oh, sure, come on by, no problem. And then you hang up the phone or turn off the text and you panic. Moms do, guys don't care. But the moms are like, kids, come here, clean up your stuff. And everybody runs around, they're cleaning up. And what do you do? You don't have time to actually clean, so you just shove it into that one room and just shut the door. Right? And then you open the door. Hey, come on in. Sorry, house is a mess. Which is a lot. It's the cleanest it's been all week long. <laughs> and they walk in. Oh, okay. And what do you say? You just clean up the parts they're going to see, but don't open that door. Because that's where our mess is. Okay? I remember when I was a kid, we were trying to sell a house we were living in. And the realtor would call. And my mom would put clothes in the oven. All right? Because who looks in the oven? Anyway. Some of you treat your relationship with Jesus that way. You take your idols and you don't purify yourself. You just try to hide them. And what he's saying is, no, 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 no. It doesn't work like that. It's repentance. And if you will confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I think the most important word in that, in that whole verse is the word all. Even that thing you think he doesn't know about, the proof that he knows about it is the cross. It's why he came and died on the cross. And so, um, <clears throat> so they put away the foreign gods they purify themselves and they change their garments or they confess their sins, they repent of their sins and then the last thing is they walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they changed their garments, they got dressed up for the Lord, why? So they could walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when I was a kid, I heard it explained to me this way, that salvation is easy as ABC, that you admit that you're a sinner, that you believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again to take away sin, it counted for you. That you believe. And that see, that you confess Jesus as Lord. That's what, that's what Jacob is doing here. When he says, put away the foreign gods, purify yourself, and change your garment. And then here's the good news. Here's the, here's the evidence that you, you know in your own life if you believe the gospel. That in the kingdom of God, nobody walks with a limp or a swagger. That you don't have to walk with a limp. Why? Because Jesus paid the full price. And by his stripes, you're healed. And you also don't walk with a swagger as if you walk in and be like, look how good I am. I go, actually, no, you're not. You're just the recipient of Christ's goodness on the cross. And so this is what Jacob leads his household to do. And again, again, it's not an outside-in thing, but it's an inside-out thing. That it started with this invitation that God gives him at the heart level. Verse 3. Jacob says, then let us arise and let us go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. In other words, <clears throat> Jacob responds to God for who he is and what he's done. Jacob essentially is saying, listen, we have been invited to come back to that original place where God revealed himself to me. And for 10 chapters of my life, I've really tried to screw this up. I mean, I've really tried to screw this up in every way I can think of, and yet God has not given up on me. Verse 4, and so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. I actually like the NIV's translation better there. It says that Jacob buried them under the tree at Shechem. You know what you, we're going to find out here in a little while, you know what you bury under the tree at Shechem? Dead stuff. People and pets, you just dig a hole, put them in them, bury them. Why? Because that is dead. Listen, church, we have to put to death the sin that's in our life. We have to put to death the idols that are in our life. Because one of the things in the modern church, especially a growing evangelical kind of church like ours, where we don't take ourselves very seriously, and when we say it's okay to not be okay, one of the dangers here is we don't take the penalty of sin serious enough. For the wages of sin is death. That your sin and my sin is so God-awful bad that somebody has to die for it. 
Now, the good news is that Jesus loves you enough that he was willing to be the one. But the wages of sin, I mean, it's incredible. It's, it's not only can be destructive to your eternity, but it can be destructive to you, to your heart, to your esteem, to your relationships, to your family, to God's promises. I mean, it matters. It matters. And you know what most of us try to do with sin? We don't try to put it to death. We just try to manage it. Just try to kind of take control of it. As if, as if being a Christian is about sin management, about getting hold of your sin, and then with all of your might, just kind of keeping it at bay, and you're trying to tame sin. When what you need to do is put a gun to its head and take it out. I'm telling you, it's bigger than you think. It is bigger than you think. The only thing I can think of that, that would come close to it is just imagine for a second, if you're a parent, just imagine for a second, <clears throat> if someone, like a neighbor, let's say a friend, a neighbor, abused your children, okay? And then they came back a couple of months later and said, I promise I won't do it again. Just, just let me spend some more time with them. What, would you try to manage that relationship? No. Never would you. You would do whatever it took to keep those people away. Whatever it took to protect those people that were so precious to you that God has put under your care. And yet, when it comes to sin in our life, many times we try to manage that and the consequences are far too great. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher, said it this way, either you're killing sin or it's killing you. That's what Hebrews is talking about when it says, therefore let us throw off everything that hinders in the sin that so easily entangles and let us fix our eyes on Jesus. So you're simultaneously putting to death the idols in your life while you are take, putting your eyes on Jesus. In verse five, and as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. This is good news. Did you know that God will always make a way for you to come home? I mean, it was God's invitation that they're gonna come home. So God is always going to make a way for you to come home. In the book of James chapter 4, it says this, <clears throat> draw near to me as I draw near to you. You know what that means? When you hear God's call in your life to come back home and you begin to take that first step. Now, don't get me wrong. The enemy is going to try to give you every excuse and every reason for you to come home. But if you will just pursue God, I promise you he will make you a way. Now, some of you are so used to coming to church, you didn't even mean to this morning. It just hit all the pallet, and here you are again. Praise God. I'm glad you're back. But there's some of you here, and it's a little miraculous that you're even here this morning. I mean, as you even look at it, first of all, you walked in, and you're like, what in the heck? This is not the church I grew up in. It's not, right. But the fact that you're here this morning is evidence. That it's empirical evidence that God loves you, and he made a way. Last night, there were four more excuses that came up. This morning, there were three more obstacles that came up. And I'm telling you, Nothing brings God more joy and glory than when his children come home. And he is making a way. And, a, and that's also true for anybody that you love, that used to know him and now they're far off. Man, please don't ever stop praying for those people. Don't give up on God. You know why? Because he'll never give up on you. He'll keep pursuing and he'll keep making a way. And so he makes a way for them to make it there in verse 6. <clears throat> and Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now this is significantly different. Here's why. The first time when he just encountered the presence of God, but he didn't know God in a personal relationship, he just called it Bethel, the house of God. He's like, I, that, that place is awesome. God's presence is there. But after he wrestled with God, surrendered his life to God, when he comes back to that place, he says, this isn't just the house of God, but I know El Bethel. I know the God of the house of God. You see, now he's in this relationship with God and he's returning to him. Verse eight, and Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried under the oak below Bethel. See, that's what you put under trees, dead people. So he called the name Alan Bakuth. Verse nine, and God appeared to Jacob again. And when he came from Padam Aram and he blessed him, verse 10, and God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. So essentially what God is doing is God's repeating himself. It's the exact same thing God said when he wrestled with Jacob and Jacob surrendered to God. When Jacob tapped out to God and said, okay, you're God and I'm not God. He changed his name. Now listen, from the time that Jacob 
surrendered to God in 32, to the time that he returns to Bethel in 35, Jacob did a lot of bad things. He, he had drifted a long ways away from God. And please hear me here. This, I think, this is where we're going to hang out for the remainder of our time. And here's what's so important. <clears throat> is that when Jacob finally returns at the invitation of God, and he comes face to face with God, guess what? God does not remind him of the things that he's done, but God reminds him of who he is. Do you see the difference? Here's why we preach the gospel over and over and over and over. Because the fact that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and paid for our sin, paid for your sin and paid for my sin, is evidence that he loves us. The Bible says this, that God demonstrated his love for us in this. So the next part of that verse is going to be very important. So how much does God love you? Here's how much he loves you. He demonstrated it this way. That even while you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me ask you to check your heart this way. You know, here's a way to know if you really believe the gospel or not. When you sin and when you stumble and when you fall. And let me just admit it. Be the first one to admit it in the room. I got some stumbling problems. Anybody else? Anybody else feel a little like, you know what? I thought at this point in my relationship with Jesus, I wouldn't struggle with those things anymore. Oh, my head is about to explode sometimes. I'm like, I'm a professional Christian. I'm still struggling with the same thing I did when I was 13. What is that all about, right? Right? I've read a book. I've prayed a prayer. I've nailed something across. I've lit stuff on fire. I've, I mean, I've done everything you could do at the end of a service. Took a bumper sticker home. Whatever you could do. And yet, you know, I stumble and fall again. So the point of the gospel is... The cross outed you. Jesus knew you needed a savior. That's why he died on the cross. So when you struggle, when you drift, when you wander, when you fall, when you sin, what do you do? Do you run to him or do you run from him? If you run from him, then you think it's based on you. And when you get your act together, then you can come back to him. That's not the gospel. But when we stumble and fall, we're invited to come home to run to him. We don't have to run from him. You know why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And people that love you will do whatever they can do within their power to make you okay, to help you heal, and to make you whole. Here's how I know. 11 years ago, we were brand new to Jacksonville. Got here, thought it was, I was stoked to be at the beach. It was about, it was 4th of July time. I thought, well, I need to surf, right? Because why would God bring you to Jacksonville and you not surf, right? That's just common grace. So we go to the, we go to the surf shop and I, be, I buy a huge surfboard because I was, you know, I was trying to learn. So it's like a John boat. It's like nine and a half feet long, right? So me and my John boat, we head out to the, to the ocean and right at the pier. It's the only place I knew to go. And so go out to the pier and Gretchen's on the shore and I'm out in the water trying to learn how to surf. And so I know everybody here surfs. If not, you should. And so I'm out at like the sandbar, that kind of second sandbar, um, at the pier, way out, almost towards the end. And what's great about learning to surf there is, because what I always find the hardest thing about surfing when I first started was just staying up on the board. Like, I could surf, but it was just sitting there, like, you know, and I'd be like, oh, no, what's happening? And I would just fall off. So it would embarrass me. So there I am, kind of holding my board like this, waiting for the waves to come. And when they come, I'd sort of boogie board onto it and just white wear a cowboy in. And I thought, I'm a surfer. So I was doing that. It's my first day ever, and uh, too much pride to ask for help. So I'm trying to figure it out on my own. Gretchen comes swimming out to me at the little second sandbar, and she's, you know, she's like, well, I saw you stand up, and we high five. She said, are you ready to go? And I go, well, I just, just uh, one more wave. Let me catch one more, and then, and then we'll head on in. And so about this time, I mean, this huge, it's like a two-foot little crumbler comes on in. <laughs> and I kind of look at her, and I'm like, hey, watch yourself. And then I grab my board, and I go to jump up over the wave, because you can't duck dive in the John boat. And she just instinctively goes to dive under the wave. And I go up and over, and the wave pushes me back, and I feel thud, okay? And I think, oh, bummer. And then I look, and she stands up out of the water, and the fin, the brand-new shark fin, catches her right here over the eye and slices her all the way back here to over the ear. And this part of her scalp just kind of opens. And we're standing in the water, and I can see her skull. And she's just bleeding profusely. This is not a small accident. Now, the first thing she does is she just comes towards me. Why? She knows I love her, and she knows I'll do whatever I can to help her. That's what she knows. Also, the first thing I do 
when we find ourselves in that spot where she is hurting and needs help is what? You think I pointed at her and said, are you dumb? Why would you jump in the wave? No, no. You know what I do? Whatever it took to save my wife. You get it? Whatever it took. And so I grab her and I've got my board because I've got to like make it through the trough, right? To get back to where we can, it's going to be over my head between here and the shore. We're almost to the end of the pier. And so I've got her in one hand and I'm pushing the board in the other. And and my wife works in physical therapy, so she knows things more medical than I do. And we just kind of, you know, she's in charge of that at our house. And at one point she's trying to keep her awake and she looks at me and just blood. I mean, you've, you've had a head injury before, right? It's just bleeds like crazy. And she's kind of losing consciousness and she just looks at me and says, please don't let me die. So I got to get her on my board and paddle her in and get to the shore. And at this point, I've just, you know, ditched the board. And I'm bringing my wife, trying to hold, put some pressure on the wound and bring her up to the shore and lay her down on the beach. And it's 4th of July weekend, so none of the real lifeguards are there. Like the little guys in the blue. You seen those guys? And if you're one of those guys, yeah, God bless you. But you're not who I'm looking for on that day, you understand? And so this little, I swear he looked 11 years old. He comes running over, you know, with his hair. And I just looked at him, and I was like, look here, buddy, I need something with a siren on it right now. And so he made a call, and the, and the pickup truck thing with the sirens on, the beach patrol deal comes pulling up, and I'm just talking to, my, I'm talking to Gretchen, just, just hanging there, baby, just stay awake, just look at me, and she's tough as nails. And don't you guys realize in that moment I would have given anything to trade places? I mean, anything, anything. Take my arms, legs, money, whatever I could give for her to be okay, that's what I would do. Who wouldn't? I mean, who wouldn't? And so then we load her up in the back of the truck, and I get in the back of the truck, and the little junior lifeguard says, sir, you can't ride back here. All right, Scooter, you go ahead and toss me out of the back of the truck. (laughs) So we ride in the back of the truck uh, to the ambulance. Get in the back of the ambulance, call some doctor friends of ours. Doc Northup, we were, you know, I was a youth pastor at Beach, and, and so he used to help us there, and they got a, a plastic surgeon meets us in the emergency room, and there we are standing in the emergency room. And I'm telling you, I can't look at her without starting to cry, right? Because the person you love the most in the whole world is just hurting. And you're trying to do whatever you could do within your power to just make them better. That's all you want to do. And so they, they shoot her up with stuff to make it numb. And, and at one point, y'all, they took, they took her scalp and kind of did like this with it. And I thought, oh gosh. And then Right at, right at that moment, the doctor said, are you okay? And Gretchen said, yeah, I'm feeling fine. I said, man, we're not talking to you. Because <laughs> my world was just kind of coming in. I was like, was he getting hot in here? Huh? So I sat down just to not be a problem. I just didn't want to take any attention towards me. All right? You felt that before, right? With the world. Like, uh, I didn't even have a leg to slide out of the bed to get down to the floor to hold me down. I was just, oh boy. So I sat down, held her hand. And they came and they stitched her up and... and uh, we pray, and every time I'd pray for her, I'd cry. And then God just miraculously just healed her. I mean, you can't even tell. You can't even tell. And I tell you that just to tell you this, is that when you love somebody, you'll do whatever you can within your power to make them whole. That's what you'll do. And all that I had within my power on that day, and I was a part of the problem was a surfboard and swim her in and get her to the ambulance and get her to the hospital and bring her ginger ale for a few days. You got it? That's, that's all I had within my power. But you want to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that also applied to Jacob? When, it, when God is the one that we're talking about here, and when you sin and you stumble and you fall and you're beaten up and you're broken and you're bruised and you're bleeding to death, you can run to him. You don't have to run away from him. Because he's not going to tell you He's not going to blame you for how you got there. That's not the point. Nothing pleases him more than his children coming home. And most of our wounds are self-inflicted wounds. But when we get to the point where we say, okay, God, I can't do this on my own. I've got to have some help. You know what God does? God does what anybody that deeply loves somebody that purely does. He goes, I'm going to do whatever I can within my power to make you whole. The good news is we serve a God, a sovereign God. And he's in charge of the whole world. And his power is unlimited. And in his unlimited power and mercy and grace, Jesus Christ came on a rescue mission to make you whole. To take away your sin. To 
to stop the bleeding. And he didn't in there, but that you can know him as a heavenly father. And so when you sin and when you stumble, and when you find yourself beaten up, battered, and bruised, even if it's your fault, how about this, especially when it's your fault, you can say, God, what do I do? I'm back. And what you do is you find yourself back in the arms of a loving heavenly father, not saying, I told you so, but just lavishing love upon love upon love upon you. That's what he does here. In verse 11, and God says to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body, and the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I'll give to you, and I'll give that land to your offspring. You know why he, you know why he repeats the promise that he gave to Abraham? You know why he pr- repeats it to Jacob? Because Jacob's probably going, really? I thought I screwed that up. And God's going, nope. Nope. Here's the thing, Jacob. God is bigger than your sin. Don't believe me? Look at the cross. He's bigger. He's bigger. And you can't screw up God's plans no matter how hard you try. Man, I know this firsthand. You see, here's the point of the whole thing, is that God's greatest desire for his glory is for his children to come home. Please don't go by that that too quickly. God's greatest desire for his glory is for his children to come home. Let me say it this way to some of you based on the background you come from. God's not mad at you. He's mad about you. Those are different. He's willing to do whatever it takes for you to hear his invitation. Won't you just come home? Come home. Please, come home. I have made a way for you to come home. And some of you are like, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. And God would say, yes, I do. That's why I sent Jesus, because you need a savior. You need a savior, not a life coach. In the New Testament, Jesus describes it this way. In Luke chapter 15, it's one of his most well-known parables. Jesus is trying to describe to a group of people what the kingdom of heaven is like, and he says it's like this. Listen, this is what God is like, according to Jesus. He said there was a man, he had two sons, and the younger son took half of the inheritance of the dad, and he ran away from dad, ran away, turned his back on him, said, I wish you were dead, and rejected his dad. And he took the blessings of his dad and he squanders them away on wild living. And this boy, when the money runs out, the pain begins. And he finds himself an Orthodox Jewish boy feeding pigs. And he looks at the pods that the pigs are eating and he thinks, man, my dad's servants eat better than this. So not only is he, not only is he unclean physically, but he's unclean spiritually because he's touching defiled animals every single day. If you were all Orthodox Jews, you'd be like, I can't believe he's doing that. I mean, it's as bad as it gets. And then the Bible says that the boy, the younger son, comes to his senses. You know how? Just like in Genesis 35.1, God invites him at the heart level. Man, why don't you come back home? And so the boy comes to his senses, doesn't even have the ability to clean up his exterior, and he begins to make his way back home. And on his way back home, he does what every single one of us do and what some of you are doing right now. You begin to work on your apology in your mind to try to let God know that you're really sorry and you won't do it again. And if you'll just take me back, I'll I'll just, you know, I'll be one of your hired hands. The Bible says, Jesus says, that this dad who represents God in this parable is standing at the edge of his driveway and every single day he is looking for his son to come home. Just looking for his son to come home. And it's a parable, so it doesn't tell us exactly how long, but man, every day, every day, every day, for year after year after year. For Jacob, it took over 20 years to come back home. And then the Bible says, oh, some of my favorite words in the whole Bible. And he saw his son, and while he was still a long way off, the dad went running to the son. He didn't wait on him to even make it all the way back home. Do you get that? As soon as he saw him making his way back, because he couldn't make the decision for him, and as soon as he saw him making his way back home, the dad takes off running. By the way, Jewish men didn't run. They didn't run. Because it was a sign of humility. Like, people could run to me, but I ain't running to you. But not this dad, because he loved his son too much. And he takes off and he runs towards his son. And the son tries to begin his excuse. Hey, God, I'm sorry. And, And the dad's just like, shut up, I'm not hearing it. I'm not even hearing it. And then the Bible says that he wraps his arms around his son. He begins to embrace him. And you know why? Because in Jewish culture in this day, the son deserved death. I mean, he was a traitor. This was treason against his dad. That he deserved 
death. And the dad knows at any moment, one of my servants around me, they might start throwing rocks. So I'll tell you what, if they throw a rock, I'm taking the hit, not my boy. Because I thought my boy was dead and now he's alive. And then he looks back and he says, hey, will not you bring me the robe? Bring me the robe, my robe, the clean robe, the best robe. It represented the righteousness of the dad. And he takes the robe of righteousness and he wraps it around his son. You know why? Because the son is filthy, filthy, filthy. And he can't even clean himself off. And the dad said, that's fine. So whenever people look at my boy, they're not going to see his filth. They're going to see my righteousness. And he says, give me the signet ring. Give me the signet ring. It had their name on it. Only, only the son's got the signet ring. And so he takes the signet ring with the family name on it, and he puts the ring on the boy's finger. And he reminds him, not of what he's done. He knows what he's done. I'm not here to remind you of what you've done. Nobody knows better than you what you've done. I'm here to remind you of who you are, an adopted son or daughter of the Most High God. And he takes that ring and he places it on the boy's finger. He says, give me, some, give me some sandals. You see, servants had to go barefooted, but sons got sandals. And so he puts some sandals on his feet. And then he turns around and he says, listen, we're going to throw the most epic house party in the history of parties. You get this? Kill the fatted calf. Get the DJ. Get the tents going. This thing is going to be awesome. And you know, some people are like, doesn't he deserve uh, a talking to no, bro, you don't get it. He deserves a party because he's my boy. And I thought he was dead and he's alive. Therefore, we're going to party. And if you don't party with us, then you don't understand what kind of dad I am. That's what happens to Jacob. Jacob comes back to God. After by his own willing rebellion had been running from him and destroying relationships for years. And when he comes back to God, God doesn't remind him of what he's done. He reminds him of who he is, that he is an adopted son of God. He gets the robe of righteousness, the signet ring, the hug of a father, sandals, and a party by God for him. And you know what his response is? Worship. Here's the thing. If you really knew that, if you knew the gospel like that, you'd sing louder. You just would. You'd sing louder. You'd be a little more, you, you could not contain it in your soul if you began to realize the depth of your dirty depravity like me and then what God had done to make you whole and clean. And it's why we say this around here. It's okay to not be okay. Some of you are jacked up and still a little hungover from last night. All right, he still loves you. He does. And he doesn't love some of you once you get cleaned up. He loves you right now. He just wants to remind you that if you surrender, not just believe that his presence is in here, but if you surrender like Jacob did when they wrestled, when you tap out and say, not me, but you, I'm not in charge anymore, you are. Oh, he'll clean you up, but you don't have to. That's not on you, that's on him. So every single one of us are going to respond to the gospel today. You are, because he's here. Some of you will ignore him. Okay, I just hope you'll be back next week. I hope you'll keep coming back. Okay, keep leaning in. Some of you will be able to admit, hey, this place is awesome in the presence of God there. That won't do anything about your eternity or your sin. Okay, it's a step in the right direction. I want to invite many of you for the very first time to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, to come home for the very first time. I'll give you the opportunity to do that in just a second. And then there's a bunch of us in this room, a bunch of us, and you've known him. And you would say, I'm a Christian, I've surrendered my life to Christ, but lately, over the last few chapters of my life, I am a long way off. I am prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And some of you would say, that's me. And the invitation of God Almighty, your perfect Heavenly Father, is this, come home. Come home. Come home. You are not coming home to condemnation, but you are coming home to the loving arms of a Heavenly Father. And that's the point. Would you please bow your head and close your eyes? If you would say that for the very first time you're ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that you want your sins forgiven and washed away, you know you're a mess and you can't fix your mess and you need God to come running to you and to do everything that's in His power to stop the bleeding. And what's in His power is He sent Jesus Christ to bleed for you. And if you're ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, would you raise your hand where you are? Would you say, here I am, I surrender, I give up. God, you're in charge of my life. I want you to pray that ABC prayer, that you admit that you're a sinner, that you believe that when Christ died on the cross to forgive sins, it counted for you, and you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord. And every single one of you praying that prayer right now, surrendering your life to Jesus in this moment, 
they're setting up the party for you in heaven. It's just true. Amen. I want you guys to put your hands down. And those of you that have walked with Jesus for a while, you call yourself a Christian, but lately you sure have been prone to wonder, and you're ready to come back home. You're ready to identify some idols, to throw those things away, bury them, and to begin to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ. If that's you, would you just raise your hand and say, Pastor, that's me, that's me. I've been walking away from him, and I'm ready to run back to him. Every single one of you with your hands up, you're going to run back to the loving arms of Heavenly Father. God in heaven, Lord, I thank you so much that you are our Father. God, I thank you so much that you run to us, that you run to us, and so we can run to you. God, I thank you so much for the the robe of righteousness. I thank you so much for the signet ring that changes our name. God, I thank you so much for the party that starts now, that we don't have to wait till heaven to get to the party. It starts now now. And God, I pray, Lord, I thank you and I praise you for salvation being in this place. God, I pray that you would surround us with believers to help identify those idols and bury them and put them to death. And Lord, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God, this would always be a place for saints and sinners where God, people would be able to come in here and hear the gospel and know that you love us, not a future version of us. And that by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we all who were once sinners can all become saints in Christ. Not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. God, I thank you that there's salvation in this place. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you please stand? I'm going to close this service the way Jacob did. Jacob responded to God for who he was and what he'd done. And, and God asked Jacob to move. And God could have done a work in Jacob's life right where he was. But there's something about moving to the altar. And so I want to invite you to come to the altar. To come and lay down whatever is that thing that hinders or so easily entangles. And that you would come and lay it down. Because if you are in Christ, it's not for you to carry anymore. And there may be somebody coming around behind you to pray for you. For the most part, we've kind of said we've authorized those people. We want people praying for us, right? Because when it's too hard to bear on your own, what that means is there's some brothers and sisters in here going, I'm going to bear your burden too and pray for you. So we're going to respond that way. We're going to respond in worship by singing together. And we're going to respond in worship by bringing our tithes and offerings to the giving boxes around. Or if you give electronically. However it is, I would just invite you to be obedient to respond the way God has initiated for you to respond.